Hey guys, welcome back to Those Murder Girls Podcast. It's Friday, which means we have a brand new episode for you. We're your hosts. I'm Raina. And I'm Marie. And we are so happy to have you guys joining us this week. What did you guys think about our collaboration last week? We really want to know. We actually really loved doing it. So we hope that you all really liked it. So here we are. It's almost Halloween. We're still at the beginning of the month, though. I actually went and picked up my costume. Raina, <gasps> did you? No. <laughs> don't tell me what you're going to be. I want to be surprised. Okay. <laughs> so what is everybody doing for Halloween? I mean, is this COVID thing? Is it still a thing? Because I, I, I feel know. like everybody's like getting out. They're traveling. So I don't know. I don't really have plans, but... It's it's early Trigger enough. Trigger treating has been canceled. Trigger, <laughs> hell no. Trigger treating doesn't happen at my house for all the kids. So we've been getting some creepy stories in from our listeners. If you guys have experienced anything like creepy, like a ghost encounter or a near abduction or shit, an abduction and you, yeah. were, ret- and you were returned, we want to know. Send those stories in to murder at those murder girls podcast or you guys can just dm us on social media yeah so you guys have to make sure that you're following us on social media on facebook instagram we've also been posting you know our current crime headlines our bloody birthday segments which we are totally loving those are awesome people love them yeah and we've just been some dropping some fun stuff here and there for you guys all right so we're gonna get into today's case it's a good one you guys It went down as the most heinous crime and unsolved crime in Alaskan history. And the trial for this case is the most expensive in their history. It's a pretty cool story. So, Marie, let's get started. Okay, so this week, you guys, we will be telling you the story of the Colthurst Family Massacre. And it took place off the coast of Craig, Alaska on September 6, 1982. The Coldhurst family had just wrapped up their fishing season and they had this 58-foot boat and they named it the Investor. The Coldhurst family consisted of dad Mark Coldhurst, his wife Irene, they were both 28 years old at the time. They had a daughter named Kimberly and she was five and they had a young son named Jonathan and he was four. Irene was actually pregnant with their third child at the time. So Mark was described as extremely hardworking within the community. Like he was a go-getter and he had plans to retire at the age of 50. Dang, so do I. Right? That means I only have like, what, 35 years to go? (laughs) Mark was on a, he was on a mission, man. He wanted to be retired at 50. So in the 12 years of his fishing career, Mark went from fishing on a skiff to actually a top line scener with a crew of eight. Irene was a stay-at-home mother, and she watched after the children, and she also, you know, managed the household while Mark was working hard to provide for them. So Mark had started fishing in his early 20s, and let me tell you, he was damn good at it. In 1979, Mark had caught $105,000 worth of fish. Holy crap. That calculates to almost $4 million in 2020. No wonder why he was able to have that goal of retiring at 50 i'm in the wrong biz my friend i am in the wrong biz i gotta go (laughs) finish this podcast on your own (laughs) so the town of craig alaska was a very small town it actually at the time only had a population of around 600 people so it was the type of town where you know everybody knew everybody and mark was known to have a cocky attitude he had a temper at times and it's also been said that you know he would pick fights with locals or they would pick fights with him whatever the case may be But, I mean, Mark was an all-star fisher, and that 
foot boat that he owned, it was worth $850,000 back in the day. And that is almost $22 million today. Mark had some money. Dang. They were high rollers. Yeah. So Mark had just purchased this boat that he called the investor, and he had just bought it a year prior. So he was always giving tours to the locals. Like, pretty much everybody just wanted to check out his boat. And he was really, really proud of it. But I don't know. Looking back kind of makes you think, like, could this make people jealous maybe of Mark? Mark and his family lived in Blaine, Washington, but every year they would relocate to Craig, Alaska during their fishing season. So as September 1982 rolled around, that meant that their super successful fishing season was coming to an end, and everyone was preparing to make the trip back home to Washington. The Colthurst returned to port from sea on September 5th. Mark had asked his deck cans to go run some errands for him in town, and he told them when they returned that the ship needed to be restocked and also cleaned. Irene and the children were scheduled to leave Craig, Alaska in the days after Mark and his crew had returned from sea because their youngest son, John, was set to start preschool soon. So Mark and his family, they went out that night to celebrate his birthday, again on the evening of September 5th, at a local restaurant that was just along the dock. The deckhands joined along, along with pretty much everybody who had returned from the fishing season. It was like this huge party. So after the party, the family was spotted returning back to the boat around 9.30 p.m., and it was just before this huge storm was set to roll in. The family was accompanied again by Mark's deckhands, Mike Stewart, Dean Moon, and Jerome Kuhn. All of them 19 and a fourth deckhand named Chris Heyman, who was 18. The next morning on the 6th, around 6 a.m., a witness reported seeing the investor drifting away from the docks towards a cove and an island called Fish Egg Island. That morning, there was super heavy fog due to the storm, so as the ship drifted off, it was being concealed from view. There were plenty of fishermen who said that they had witnessed the boat drifting away and even said that they saw and waved to a man on board thinking that it was Mark, the skipper. Around 4 p.m. that afternoon, a crew that was docking their boat spotted dark plumes of smoke coming from the investor. They immediately radioed in to police and they headed out to try to help the burning ship. So as they were headed out, something that they thought was strange as they were full throttle towards the investor was that they passed the skiff. And for those of you who don't know, a skiff is a smaller boat that's used to travel from shore and back to the boat. And it's something that fishermen use. It's attached to the side of the boat. So the skiff from the investor was heading in the opposite direction of the boat towards shore. They had tried to wave to this man that was on the skiff to get his attention and flag him down, but they didn't have any luck. So they continued full speed towards the burning ship. So this unknown man headed back to shore in the skiff and he parked it on the docks and basically slipped away into the Alaskan wilderness, but not before he was spotted by a few locals. So when the crew and the police arrived at the investor, it was fully engulfed in flames. It took over four hours to even suppress the flames so that the emergency responders could even get on board the boat. It would actually take officially two days to extinguish the entire flames completely. So once aboard the fishing boat, remains were found. Now, it was extremely difficult to determine what were actually remains and what was burnt debris. So as the investigation continued, they ended up finding three adults and one child, and they were burned beyond any sort of recognition. So the bodies were sent out to be identified, and they were so badly burned that they had to be identified via dental records. Well, when the reports came back, the bodies were confirmed to be Mark, 
his wife Irene, and their daughter Kimberly. The fourth adult was identified as one of the deckhands, Michael Stewart. Now, their youngest son, John, he was never found in the ashes. And the investigators said that they think he might have been in the place where the fire was initially ignited, which would have been the hottest points on the ship. And therefore, his remains were never recovered. I wonder if, I mean, we've already said that this is unsolved. I wonder if possibly he could have been taken to a second location, maybe not even killed. Yeah. That's something that I was thinking about when I was reading this over. It like makes you think, yeah. Totally. There's he was never ne- found. Yeah. Isn't that Ugh. crazy? Gives me chills. So as they continue the investigation throughout the days, they um, began, they began to uncover more remains. Actually, they found bones, they found teeth, they found a half burnt torso. Those remains were identified as the remaining crewmen that were on board. And it was just, they were such young guys. They were all of Mark's young deckhands. It's just so sad. So now this boat fire was pretty much the entire talk of Craig, Alaska. Like, what the hell is going on? How did the fire start? Like, the family, what went wrong? Was it, was it an accidental fire? Well, they were about to get a huge shock because when the coroner that was in charge of the case released his report, he stated that the fire was not accidental. It was arson. This was no tragic accident. The coroner determined that everyone on board was actually killed prior to the fire even starting. They had all been executed. Some of them were shot several times as well. This was determined and that he also found that there was zero carbon monoxide found in any of the victims' bodies. Now, there was, you know, a high blood alcohol content in the adults. They had just returned from that party. No, you know, lethal limits. But, I mean, you know, they just went to the birthday party. So of course they're going to have a little alcohol in their system. But he did determine that they were either shot with a 22 caliber or some sort of rifle. The exact type of weapon was never confirmed. Now what the cops could never quite figure out was the timeline. Like when was the family killed? That remained a mystery. The investor at the time was docked near another large vessel by the name of the decade. And at 10.30 p.m. the night of the birthday party, a witness on the decade had stated that the four-year-old boy, John, had stuck his head inside to say hi to the crew members. Now, after that, no one is seen, like, no one sees the family or the crew coming or going. And there was a heavy storm that rolled in, so everyone stayed on their boats that night. So the question remains, when was the Clouthurst family shot? Were they shot when they entered the boat? Were they shot when they were sleeping? I don't know. The coroner did state that the fire was intentionally set by somebody, but who? Like, who would want this family dead? I mean, little they had little to no enemies that, the, you know, the police found out. So I don't know. The investigation now begins as to who is responsible for this. And I want to know where John's at. John? I, don't, I don't think he was on the ship. Poor little guy. I'm uh, serious. I know. It leads you to believe, like, where would where's John? No, absolutely nothing Never found is him. found. That's nuts to me. I know. So the investigators begin to question all of the locals, and they're focusing mainly on the fishermen and the crewmen that are around the dock. Um, they believe that someone there could be a possible suspect or have, you know, that piece of evidence that they're looking for to be able to determine one. So remember when the crew was initially set out to render aid to the fire on the ship? Well, they had seen that man on the skiff heading to shore. So they find out a man um, with the same description was seen earlier in the day purchasing gas off of the dock. 
And this wasn't very long before people witnessed the ship drifting away from the docks. The cops draw up a composite sketch of the man who was described to be 150 pounds and in his early 20s, and they start passing it around to the locals in town. When the cops interview these locals, though, they say that they didn't recognize this man to be anyone that they had seen before. They said that he definitely wasn't one of the usual crew members that were on these local boats. So investigators wondered who this unknown man could have been and who the man was leaving on the skiff. Suspect. Well, one of the locals came forward and said that the composite sketch reminded him a lot of a previous employee of Mark Colthurst. And cue our first suspect. (laughs) So that local said that the man resembled a gentleman by the name of John Kenneth Peel. Now, John Kenneth Peel was 23 at the time. He had worked for Mark in 1980, and John was employed by Mark for quite some time, but he transferred to work on another fishing boat in 1982. John was also known to date Mark's sister in the past, but what reason would John have to kill the entire family and crew? So police kind of focus on John because, you know, of the composite sketch and the description did match and he was seen getting gas on the dock and was he possibly the same man leaving on the skiff? So they really hone in on John. Now, unfortunately, there was no physical evidence tying John to the crime or really any crime for that matter. It is not a crime to buy gas and it's also not a crime to be on a skiff. So the investigators knew that they had their work cut out for them. Investigators decided to call John in for some questioning, so they offered him a polygraph test. Well, John agreed, and he took the test, and he did not do so hot. He ended up failing the test completely. So John starts to climb the cops' radar. Back at the station, cops were stumped because there was literally over 100 guys in that town that could have fit the description given to them about the mystery man seen that evening. Now, eventually, John was eliminated as a suspect because the main witness that was on the docks, he couldn't identify him as the skiff man coming back to shore from the investor. But not all the cops were gung-ho on letting John off entirely. So they go back and they take a look at John's history. And they find out that he was, in fact, fired by Mark for drinking and using illegal drugs while he was working on the investor. So it made them think, disgruntled employee, could that have been the motive John would have had to murder Mark, his family, and the entire crew? Rumors were swirling around town that this whole thing was just a drug deal gone bad and that the investor was actually a drug boat. But those who knew the cult hearse knew better and that rumor fizzled out pretty soon after it started. So the investigators create a timeline to determine if the killer had boarded the ship in the late hours with the family shortly after the family and crew returned or before they returned from the party on the docks and lied in wait. The cops followed every lead that came in, chasing every single tip and conducting as many interviews as possible, anything that would lead them to a suspect. And it ended up leading them to a dozen potential suspects. As their investigation continued and time passed and dragged on, it was clear to the investigators that one person of interest could not be fully cleared, and that was John Peel, the former deckhand. A year and a half goes by, and they bring John back in for another formal interview. Still, they had little to no evidence to go on to physically connect John to the murders. So they were hoping to have John come in 
have him talk and hope for a slip up that somehow might reveal something that only the killer knows. Maybe even just come out and confess, which obviously is an investigator's dream. Nothing came from that second formal interview, but it was all good because months later, they end up arresting John for the murders of everyone aboard the Investor. Yep. So it's been two years after the massacre when the police actually arrested John in Bellingham, Washington. John is arrested and he's charged with first degree for the murder of all eight people aboard the ship and first degree arson as well for setting the fire. Now, there was still zero physical evidence um, tying John to the crime, but the prosecution had a theory. They believed that John was furious about being fired by Mr. Colthurst. They said that John was jealous of Mark, so to get back at him, he murdered his entire family out of rage, then set the ship afire to cover his tracks. So the trial was held in 1986, and the cost of this trial was over $2 million. That was for the trial, the investigation, all of that lumped together. Now, this staggering cost for the state of Alaska became the most expensive trial in Alaskan history. So the trial lasted over eight months before it concluded, and it actually ended in a hung jury. So the investigators, they were obviously beyond devastated, but they weren't done with John. They continued to pursue their investigation into him as their main suspect, and they headed back to court for a second trial in 1988, costing $700,000. They were not about to let John off. They were trying to hang this dude. So the jury deliberated for four days and they ended up acquitting John Peel in the murders and all arson charges. The investigation into the investor ship massacre would end up costing Alaska overall $3 million in a span of six years. Now, John Peel had always maintained his innocence. And at this point, he's a free man. So John turns around and he files a wrongful prosecution suit against the state of Alaska in 1990. And he was seeking $175 million. In the suit filed, it clearly states that a detective during the initial investigation in 1984, he had handwritten a note that said, quote, without a confession, there was no direct evidence tying John Peel to the crime. So that right there, single-handedly, I mean, it wins John's lawsuit against the state. He's good to go. But in the end, he was awarded, him and his lawyers were awarded $900,000 in restitution in the year 1997. There are still people in Craig, Alaska today that believe John is responsible for these crimes. And one detective in the investigation said, quote, they got the right guy just because someone's acquitted doesn't mean that they are innocent. Kind of reminds me of the O.J. Simpson trial. Just a little bit. John has long maintained his innocence and claims that he has no idea what happened to the family that evening. And so we'll never know. John went on the record to say, quote, somebody was responsible for this. Somebody out there knows what happened, but I am not going to waste any more of my life on it, end quote. So today, what we do know is that the local police have stopped investigating the murders and there's no longer an investigation. They are no longer looking for any persons of interest, and it appears that the case is now closed. So now that just leaves people thinking, was somebody jealous of Mark, jealous enough to kill him? I mean, this crime scene is pretty passionate. I mean, who would want the entire family and each and every crew member dead? So the family of the Colthurst still have these questions to this day as to what happened that night. 
Well, guys, that is today's story about the Colthurst family massacre. We hope that you guys enjoyed today's case. And as always, thank you for joining us. Don't forget to send us your real-life creepy stories so we can feature them on our weekly Creepy October special. Also, please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening now. Leave us a five-star review and a rating. You got, got that, you guys? Got it, guys. Five stars. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it really helps us rank up. Uh, we just love you guys so much. We hope you have a really safe weekend. Tune in next week. We have a bloody birthday coming your way as well and an October special. Bye, Bye guys. guys.